Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. She joined the trio of sex perverts. The majority of the female customers were dressed in mannish costume. Agent recommends the revocation of liquor license for Mary's first and last chance bar on the grounds that it is a resort for sex perverts. Just two days before Christmas, 1959. The ruling comes down on Mary's first and last chance, a lesbian bar in Oakland, California. 
After the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board orders the revocation of the bar's liquor license on the grounds that it's a resort for sex perverts, the bar owners Mary Azar and Albert Valerga hire attorney Morris Lowenthal. Lowenthal has previously defended the Black Cat Cafe. Throughout Lowenthal's appeals process, he defends Mary's first and last by using the Daughters of Belitis as an example of the bar's clientele. Look at these upstanding, law-abiding, gender-normative citizens. These women wear skirts and have long hair. On December 23, 1959, the California Supreme Court rules in favor of Mary's first and last chance. The court declares the resort for sex perverts law has been unconstitutionally applied in this case. Basically, the court says that just because homosexuals show up in a bar doesn't mean they're all sexual perverts. Look how well-behaved the DOB is. And a bar owner can't be held responsible for determining every customer's sexuality. It's a big win if you're a homosexual who dresses according to the gender you were assigned at birth. While Morris Lowenthal fought and will continue to fight for civil rights, in this case, he inadvertently uses the Daughters of Belitis against butch lesbians. This win for Mary's first pushes butch women into a lower class than gender-normative lesbians, implying that masculine-of-center women are less deserving of the same rights. The court's decision overall is a win for both sides. It declares the resorts for sex perverts law unconstitutional, but the way the decision is phrased allows for bars to still be shut down for anything cops perceive as cross-dressing. To close the places of congregation will, at best, only increase the policing problem in the parks, on the streets, in the public toilets. Whether the city likes it or not, it will mean that homosexuals will flow in greater numbers into the more elite bistros of hotels, supper clubs, and other downtown areas. How much better it would seem to us is a situation where homosexuals can go safely and be among their own kind, thereby offending the least number of non-homosexuals. And how much better would it be if we could substitute an educational program conducting classes or lectures in the bars and or clubs they frequent? Hal calls Pangraphic Press in the Mattachine offices prints a new booklet, Bob Dameron's Address Book. It's a national gay bar directory of 50 little pages small enough to fit into a shirt pocket. This is a big step up from Hal's 1954 mimeograph list of just 35 West Coast bars that people had to sign for in order to ensure secrecy. Now the bars are mostly thriving as a new decade begins. After Mary's first wins their case, the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board feels like the gay bars are a bit untouchable as far as shutting them down just for having gay customers. Handlebar's license is even restored. But the cops are still shaking down bars for payoffs. After last year's mayoral election scandal and the positive publicity the Mattachine Society received for suing candidate Russell Walden, bar owners like Uncle Billy at the 585 Club see publicity as their new tool for resistance. Uncle Billy, William Morrill, calls gay bar owners from downtown and waterfront neighborhoods to join him for a meeting. Uncle Billy has an unusually large network of gay bar-owning friends. Three of the five who join him in their secret meeting are terrified they'll be exposed for working against the police. But bars don't necessarily need protection if they know their rights. After Mary's first went to court, they are assured that bars do have some type of sort of rights. 
Uncle Billy calls Saul Stuman, owner of the Black Cat, who is still in the appeals process as the ABC has been trying to shut down his bar since 1956. Stuman joins their cause and arranges an additional meeting. All these gay bar owners, plus the Alcoholic Beverage Control Administrator and Mayor Christopher's own police chief, Thomas Cahill. Previously, I welcome you to the Black Cat, the most famous bohemian bar in the world. Rebels have been flaunting convention at the Black Cat for over 20 years. The investigators use their power with the police to revoke a bar's license on the grounds that it's a resort for sex perverts. I was approached while in a public men's room when I was arrested by two plainclothes policemen who had witnessed the incident through an overhead grill work. There is no organized crime in San Francisco. The crime's all organized by the police department. My potential employers in these positions found themselves not permitted to employ me. The Mattachine Society is the national voice of the organized sex deviants. You parents of daughters, make yourselves acquainted with the name Daughters of Belitis. In a blind drive for office, my opponent has degraded the city. So long as we homosexuals help maintain society's ignorance, we are guarding the very weapons we fear. The day my copy arrives, I sit and read it from cover to cover. Only so much can be accomplished by the printed word. There must also be the spoken word. I swear, I truly did see the stenciled letters swim across my eyes on the screen. Verboten. Throw away that brochure on homosexual rights in the law. Most police have more respect for their billy clubs than for citizens' rights. I don't have to prove myself innocent. You have to prove me guilty. If the young man doesn't pay up, the lawyer is going to use the confessions against him in court. Don Lucas storms out of the Mattachine offices and marches down Market Street. This is the cause of it. Get the hell out of my office. This is less than one half of what it would have cost if done commercially. No individual has profited one cent. More than $4,600 today are not paid by Hal Call to Helen Branson. Hal never gave his king her royalties. To my favorite author and my favorite gay bar. Your first is our first also. Motion to remove Mattachine Publications from Pangraphic Press and replace Hal Call's seat. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. You can't have graft without the mayor knowing about it. It has to seep right through the police department. Allowing for police payola, a fun term for bribing a cop, can bring the city two to three million dollars per year just through the SFPD. But federal subsidies for San Francisco's redevelopment will start a flow of hundreds of millions of dollars over the next decade. Mayor Christopher's campaign against Russell Wolden wasn't just about clean streets. It was also about clean government. Typically, politicians drop their clean government ideals once they win the office. But for Christopher, there's a larger payoff on the city's horizon. So if Mayor Christopher cleans up the city's police force payola, he can more easily call for rich developers and landowners and corporations for campaign donations. Cleaning the city's government starts the cash flow for city redevelopment. So how can Mayor Christopher show the federal government and rich donors that he's improving the city? High-profile prosecutions. Meanwhile, Chief Cahill joins the gay bar owners for their meeting. The owners spill. 
They say ABC supervisory agent Lawrence Cardellini, who worked on the Black Cat case, has been extorting bars, taking payoffs in exchange for protection from the ABC, his own agency. Sergeant Waldo Reesing Jr. has been doing the same, the bar owners say. Chief Cahill obviously does not care about the rights of the gay bars, but this is certainly his and the mayor's opportunity to show their effort for clean government and earn citywide gentrification money. It's sort of like when Target donates hundreds of thousands of dollars to anti-gay action groups, but then they stop so Lady Gaga will sell an exclusive edition of her album in their stores. It's not ethics, it's capitalism. In this case, the city of San Francisco and Mayor Christopher can use the gay bars to get their corporate cash and, incidentally, help gay people. Late February 1960, the trap is set. The DA puts a wire on Handlebar's owner, Leo Oren. Just as Leo said he would, SFPD Sergeant Waldo Resink comes into the bar looking for a little payoff in exchange for not raiding the place. The bar owner, Leo, pays the sergeant $120. As the cop comes walking out of the handlebar with the marked bills, police investigators arrest him. Two weeks later, the handlebar catches another cop. Soon after, two more inspectors get the chop for taking payoffs from the 585 Club and have one bar. The papers commend Chief Cahill for his hard line against corruption. They call the scandal Gayola. Herb Kane, San Francisco Chronicle. Russ Walden, if nobody else, will be interested to learn that the Daughters of Belitis will hold their national convention here May 27th through 30th. They are the female counterparts of the Mattachine Society, and one of the convention highlights will be an address by attorney Morris Lowenthal, titled The Gay Bar in the Courts. Oh, brother. I mean, sister. Come to think of it, I don't know what I mean. It may seem that we're bugging you about DOB's first national convention, and we are. We believe you will be missing a great deal if you pass up this gathering, the first we know of to concentrate on the lesbian and her problems. After their many promotions in the latter, now reaching more than 750 copies per issue, 200 women registered to attend the Daughters of Belitis convention. Like the Mattachine Conventions, all homophiles are invited to attend. Hal Call writes to the DOB, saying he's not sure if any of his members can attend this convention, with it being so openly lesbian. Phyllis Lyon writes back, If the Mattachine men dress properly and conduct themselves with decorum, then surely they won't be mistaken for lesbians. of your magazine and I plan on attending your upcoming conference. I'm just wondering, do we have to wear skirts? I haven't worn a skirt in 17 years. Yes, you have to wear a skirt. Police may be present. She buys one skirt and drives up to the convention. Barbara Giddings will later remember this with some annoyance, saying, everybody rejoiced over this as though some great victory had been accomplished, the feminizing of this woman. The first convention of the Daughters of Belitis begins in San Francisco on May 27, 1960, Memorial Day weekend, on the top floor of the Hotel Whitcomb on Market Street. Women from all over the country arrive for the huge Friday night cocktail party at Dell and Phyllis's house and the Saturday banquet. Hardly any Mattachinos attend. As they enter the hotel on Saturday in their skirts and heels, the daughters are stopped by SFPD homosexual detail officers Rudy Nieto and Dick Castro. 
The men are there to investigate if any women are wearing men's clothes. Go ahead. Look around. Attend our meetings. Maybe even give me a call tonight. Let's talk about it. Dell writes down her telephone number and walks into the convention. Phil, I just gave the police my home phone number. Now why on earth did I do that? Through the convention meetings, Phyllis is surprised to see one man attending all the sessions. Later in the 1970s, she'll find out that this is CIA agent Dr. David Rhodes. In a Senate subcommittee investigating covert government investigations, Rhodes will testify about his attempt to interview lesbians at the convention and test some CIA theories. But, big surprise, lesbians at a lesbian convention aren't interested in being questioned by a straight man. He said he, in his own words, didn't learn much. The cops also attend the Saturday debate on gay bars. Attorney Morris Lowenthal and an ABC lawyer shout at each other through a session. In an even more disappointing turn, the session led by a minister ends up being a diatribe about how damned all these women are. Dell and Phil are attempting to start a dialogue with the church, but this is not their guy. After the Saturday sessions, a banquet is held. The DOB leaders take a moment to honor their favorite SOBs, sons of Belitis, including Hal Call, Elver Barker, and Jim Kepner. Helen Sandoz then gives a friendly tongue-in-cheek shout-out. Thank you, DOB, ABC, Vice Squad, professional folk. Thank you all for letting us see you and letting you see us. The daughters pick up their maps given to them at the convention and go out to hit the gay bars. The maps are sprinkled with local daughters' bar recommendations. After a late night out, the convention holds a Sunday business meeting and a dinner for members. Charlotte Coleman, owner of The Front, closes her bar that night for women-only guests of the DOB convention. And so begins a tradition of Belitis conventions every other year throughout the 1960s. One magazine, Los Angeles. For the first time in several generations, just about every New York City gay bar has been shut down. And they're not alone. In Philadelphia, police raid a mansion where a private screening of a borderline legal film is being held. Cops storm the house midway through the film and take 84 people into custody. The screening was being held as a reason to discuss reopening a Mattachine chapter. In San Francisco, the ABC joins the police in their gayola sting. Just like the bar owner said, they catch the ABC agent Lawrence Cardellini leaving Castaway Bar with $150 worth of marked bills. More arrests follow at Jack's Waterfront Hangout. The bar owner, who is gay, told Officer Edward Bigarini just two years ago that he planned on converting his bar into a gay establishment. The officer approved of the decision, so long as the police were, in his words, taken care of. As profits came in, the required payoff got bigger. When the waterfront bar owner dishes to the Gayola investigators, he reports a total of nearly $3,000 paid to four officers. Watching the scandal play out from City Hall, Mayor Christopher sees two problems that he can turn into opportunities. One, gay bar owners are sexual spaces that contradict his family values message. Let's crack down on them. Chief Cahill and the ABC agree. A complete cooperation and close coordination for an attack on San Francisco's homosexual problem. And two, if the mayor and his city crack down on the gay bars, which legally will have to be those with gender nonconforming customers, then bar owners will seek protection from police, and more officers will try to get payoffs from the bars, which means they'll get exposed by the Gayola scandal and make the mayor look like he's working for clean government. 
four months later. A grand jury indicts five of the eight accused police officers. A month of daily stories cover the front pages with photos. As papers cover these case details, they teach the public about the city's underground queer culture. Mean mugshots of the officers are printed, subsequently swaying public sympathy to the gay bars. I'm mad and a little sad. I will stand behind any policeman doing his job who makes an honest mistake in judgment. But this does not involve an honest mistake in judgment. If you let them get away with a little bit, the next thing you know will be like Chicago, where automatically police expect payoffs. The San Francisco Examiner reports on a sergeant taking the stand. Adamantly, as though refusing to tear up a traffic ticket, he held to his protestations of innocence. Like a deadpan Damon Runyon character spouting from a Kinsey report, he recounted a series of run-ins at the bar. The papers stop calling the establishments resorts for sex perverts and begin to just say gay bar. Sergeant Resink accepts a plea bargain and is sentenced to a year in prison. As the case goes on, accused officers attempt to attack their gay bar-owning accusers by describing the vile establishments they run. But other cops say we couldn't arrest these vile bar owners because the public is becoming more tolerant of gay bars. Then the defense counters that homosexual men are a danger to children and women. To prove it, they put Martha Sugru, a patrolman's wife, on the stand. She's pregnant, wearing a maternity dress, and tells the jury that she convinced her husband to take her to Jack's waterfront hangout so she could see a gay bar. I felt very uneasy, and we left without having a drink. Arrest my case. That's their case. She walked in, felt icky, and left. This truly happened. The prosecution allows for the defense to focus on the moral corruption of gays rather than the financial corruption of the police. The jury finds the four officers not guilty. ABC agent Cardellini doesn't get a felony extortion conviction, but rather three years probation for the misdemeanor of accepting a gratuity. His 20 character witnesses are all ABC agents who allegedly gave their own bribery earnings to the defense fund and testify for him in order to cover their own tracks. And yet, despite many of the accused getting away with the Gayola payoffs they extorted from gay bars, public opinion shifts. Large payoff networks in the SFPD slow to a halt as newspapers mock officers and as the public supports the existence of gay bars in San Francisco. One attorney tells a reporter, These people have to drink someplace. A gay bar is a public place, and if non-homosexuals don't like it, they can leave. The police do not go quietly. The queers of San Francisco have yet to see the largest raid in the history of their city. Wonder why Hal Call is so scared of starting a pen pal club in the Mattachine Review? This week on my bonus podcast, we're going into the Mattachine Society offices to open some interesting letters and hear Don Lucas's day-to-day correspondence. And we'll get a look at what the Mattachine actually does when they're not bickering and scheming. This story and several more are available right now on my Patreon at patreon.com slash queerserial. I'll be taking a very short break after this big episode so that listeners and I can catch up, but Patreon subscribers will still be getting regular bonus episodes, so check it out. The Queer Serial Patreon also has Mattachine, Belitis, and Transvestia buttons, Helen Branson's book Gay Bar, originally published by Hal Calls, Pangraphic Press, and transcripts of episodes, bonus pictures, and a very cute mug. 
Okay, that's all. Let's get back to the drama. There's a link to my Patreon in the episode notes. June, 1960. I believe that four years of a one-woman editorship is enough. New ideas and a fresh slant on the problems involved are necessary if the latter is to continue to be what we wish it to be. Hal Call, are you listening? He's not. Phyllis introduces the new editor of the latter, her partner, Del Martin. Del's first act as editor? Taking on Mary Jane Meeker, author under many pen names, including Anne Aldrich and Vin Packer. Under Packer, she wrote 20 crime and mystery pulp novels for Fawcett Publications' gold medal books. One of her first, Spring Fire. A story once told in whispers, now frankly, honestly written. Spring Fire was published in 1952, the first paperback original with lesbian themes setting off a whole new genre. Lesbians all over the country pick up these affordable books in drugstores and bus depots. They're small enough to slip into a pocket and cheap enough to be thrown away if necessary. They're printed on thin pulp paper. After Spring Fire, Mary Jane suddenly began receiving boxes of mail from lesbians, and Gold Medal wants to publish more. Jean Damon reviews four lesbian pulp fiction books in 1957 for the latter. By 1959, there are 34 for her to cover. In five years, there will be nearly 350. Many men will begin to write lesbian pulp and assume every stereotype and write every sexist scene imaginable. Even Mary Jane herself is guilty of sensationalizing and vilifying. Under Vin Packer, she publishes titles such as The Evil Friendship and Intimate Victims. But many of Gold Medal's early publications are written by other lesbians. The covers are all so sexy they're camp, in order to sell to more men, but lesbians in search of representation buy them too, no matter how inauthentic the covers are. Oh, and the endings must leave the lovers torn, and one or both of the lesbians must be determined crazy or sick if you want the books to be shipped through the mail and sold. Lesbian is an ugly word and I hate it, but that's what I am. Under the pen name Anne Aldrich, Meeker wrote, We Walk Alone. Of the love that dwells in twilight, the love that can never be told. Del Martin writes about it. We have glossed over the segment of the lesbian population, which we consider to be the majority of the minority group. We refer to those who have made an adjustment to self and society and who are leading constructive, useful lives in the community in which they live. Then Dell offers Mary Jane a free year subscription to the latter. Naturally, Mary Jane Meeker feels attacked, so her next book under pen name Anne Aldrich includes a storyline making fun of the daughters of Belitis. That book is called Carol in a Thousand Cities. The Twilight Woman, as she sees herself, and as she is seen through the eyes of others. Meeker depicts the latter writers as amateur, man-hating, butch-femme lesbian couples. She even argues with Lorraine Hansberry about them. In the latter, book reviewer Jean Damon writes, With her witty knife ever in hand, Aldrich slashes to ribbons every story without exception that appeared in the latter during the year 1958 including two written by this reviewer. In some total, the book is about half for and half against lesbianism. One wonders how Miss Aldrich feels way up there, judging and defiling her people. Bibliographer Jeanette Howard Foster even writes a latter article titled Anne of 10,000 Words Plus. 
Miss Aldrich doesn't admit to writing fiction herself. Even if her three volumes on gay life in New York City read a good deal like it, they are sufficiently literal reportage to have got her boycotted by several gay bars in that city. The patrons don't care to be used as copy. What these reveal is superlative early training in writing to sell, and something like diarrhea of the pen. For my money, someone's not sure just who she is. People who live in glass houses should undress in the dark. Aldrich teases D.O.B. in her book, but openly dragging them just teaches her own readership about the lesbian organization and their magazine. Your slap at the ladder has boomeranged. Aside from the mail you yourself have received and graciously forwarded, letters and subscriptions have been pouring into the D.O.B. office. One letter addressed simply to Daughters of Belita, San Francisco, California, reached us. Another queried the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce for our address. Then Dell reprints her review of Carol in a Thousand Cities for their new readers and offers the book for sale through the latter's new book service. Cleo Bonner and Helen Cushman begin the DOB book and record service. Cleo shares a duplex, one side with Helen, the other side with her son. Cleo was recruited into DOB at a brunch with Dell and Phil, hosted for Closeted Women. Cleo was the only person to show up. She and Helen start running the book service in order to sell titles like, for $5, Jeanette Howard Foster's Sex Variant Women in Literature, her study of literally thousands of years of lesbian love from Sappho to the Well of Loneliness. Autographed by the author. And for 35 cents, Odd Girl Out by Anne Bannon, a.k.a. Valerie Taylor. Put a pin in her for another day. A confession of love, as shocking and as honest as spring fire. Cleo Bonner writes, Novels on lesbian life, well-written and ending happily. And remember Lisa Ben from episode one this season? Pretty soon, Cleo and Helen will release a 45 record of Lisa Ben's songs called The Gayest Songs on Wax. Frankie and Johnny were lovers. Lordy, but how they could camp. Swore to stick to one another, just like two wets postage stamps. He was his man, but he done him wrong. Frankie swished down to the gay bars to sip him some pink lemonade. He asked, has my Johnny been in here? Was he caught in last night's raid? Oh, he's my man. Is he a-doing me wrong? The bartender said, listen, Frankie, I ain't gonna tell you no lie. Your John's got it made with a piece of trade who is known as a Nelly Bly if he's your man. Woo, honey, he's a-doing you wrong. Frankie went to the hotel room Knelt down by the keyhole to spy And sure enough, there was his John boy Fooling round this other guy He caught his man He was a-doing him wrong Frankie flew down to the gun shop Bought a pearl handle 44 Rooted to his fickle fruit he shot right through that door he shot his man for doing him wrong now frank was not much of a marksman and that hotel door was shut the bullets were meant for their cruel cruel hearts and they landed in there but he 
he shot his man for doing him wrong. Now this story has quite a moral, as you can plainly see. There's plenty more fruit in the orchard, so go out and shake that tree. Don't shoot your man for doing you wrong. Never, never shoot your man for doing you wrong. Sexual freedom in the 60s. A growing mass of thinking adults are being stirred to action. The Mattachine Society is also wielding the power of their press. Hal Call starts a new column, Calling Shots. The single basic aim of the review should be to repeal those outmoded laws governing private sex behavior between consenting adults. Covering the trends in sex education, court cases, sex work, pornography, obscenity, censorship, Privacy at VD clinics, erotic prose, sexually explicit books. The Mattachine Review even prints full-page ads for erotic books now. And former Reverend Wallace de Ortega Maxi's new magazine, Sex and Censorship. Hal publishes more explicit headlines, such as... The Hustlers. Exactly how tough are they? And, of course... Revolt of the Homosexual. Beat poets Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg are talking about the Mattachine Review... Ginsburg publishes an original poem in an issue. Hal's Dorian Book Service is sending out more than 200 different books on sexuality to people all over the country. The publication's voice shifts. It's starting to sound a bit more like Henry Gerber's writing from decades before. Hal now writes about religion as a paycheck for priests, sin in a monetary exchange for forgiveness, and the one sin almost every adult experiences? Sex. The more a faith exploits sex outside marriage as a sin, the more money that faith makes. The laws of the land are tied to religion's taboos, so they crack down on sexual behavior, including homosexuals, who obviously have to have sex outside of marriage. To ignore sexuality as a homosexual rights organization, the magazine would be encouraging the church, and thus the laws and our own oppression. Seven years ago, when Hal Call commandeered the Mattachine from Harry Hay and the Foundation, he argued that there was no ethical homosexual culture and that gay people are just the same as everyone else experiencing nothing different in life aside from who we take to bed. Now, in 1960, he writes of the Mattachine's new goals for revolution through sexuality. This effort can result only in a continually changing set of moral values, which will in time benefit the total culture. July 1960. The latter. The homosexual vote. They had a sway in the mayoral election last year, Christopher versus Walden. When a scandal involving both Mattachine and Belitis made the papers, people got in touch with the organizations. Mattachine's lawsuit made headlines. The daughters got people registered to vote so they could leave both bigoted candidates on the ballot blank. 9,000 people didn't vote for mayor. Is there or could there be a homosexual voting block? Another step toward Harry Hayes' vision for the queer community, a political platform. In Washington, D.C., Frank Kameny is writing his own petition to take his case to the Supreme Court. 
He cites the Kinsey reports and Donald Webster Corey's The Homosexual in America. And the more he argues his case on paper, Frank sees that this case is really not about his personal value as a trusted employee of the government. It's a fight against the mistreatment of all homosexuals as a minority. He also needs funding to get his case to the Supreme Court. He can't go much further on his own. So he writes to every organization he knows of that might believe in what he's standing for. I am not a belligerent person. Frank Kameny writes to the Mattachine Society offices in San Francisco and New York, and one magazine in Los Angeles. Nor do I seek wars. But having been forced into a battle, I am determined that this thing will be fought through to a successful conclusion, come what may, and that as long as any recourse exists, I will not be deprived of my proper rights, freedoms, and liberties as I see them or of a career, profession, and livelihood, or of my right to live my life as I choose to live it, so long as I do not interfere with the rights of others to do likewise. This is a test case that will set valuable precedents for homosexuals. Frank awaits their reply. His letter arrives in New York as the Mattachine leaders travel to San Francisco for what no one knows will be the final convention of the National Mattachine Society. Good morning, Mattachine Society. Don Lucas speaking. I can't do it, Don. I can't come in today. Lewis. I just cannot come into work today. I can't face it. I'll keep him occupied today. His only reason for bringing me here was solely to get me out of New York. Oh, please. How need you at Pangraphic? It was never about New York. There are five cities with Mattachine area councils, Don. How often does Hal bicker with Chicago, Boston, Denver? If he brought me here for a $30 a week job, because I can handle running Dorian Book Service, then why is Hal such a slave driver, Don? Lewis. He's trying to drain New York of good employees. Don't be ridiculous. He also needed someone to rent his extra room. Huh. Lewis Christie, a recent addition to the San Francisco Pangraphic Press staff, writes to his friends in the New York Mattachine chapter from his rented room in Hal Call's apartment on Pine Street. I've come to understand this mechanism of the shared offices on 693 Mission Street. Hal Call delivers all printing as a partner of Pangraphic and receives all printing for the Mattachine as publications director. Having worked and lived with him for six months, I would not be willing to place his devotion on a par with his salesmanship. I have come to believe that the Mattachine is at a great disadvantage, if not already defunct as a creative organization, as long as it is held in the PGP offices. I believe Hal's reasons for keeping it so are personal. He is strictly a local yokel who envisions himself as king of the San Francisco Queens. Lewis is not the only mole inside Pangraphic writing to New York leadership. Henry Foster, who sits on the board of directors and even found the printing press that runs Pangraphic Press, He writes to New York complaining of Hal's power, his crossover time between Mattachine and PGP, his hectic relationship with local bar owners, and Hal's demand to show physique movies on the Saturday night of the upcoming convention. We should keep to our motto of carrying out the Mattachine principles in a dignified manner to educate the public. The Daily Committee of the Society, which controls the national affairs of the Society between conventions, is composed of members of the board of directors who have a vital and vested interest in the financial gains of Pangraphic Press. Another's an employee of Pangraphic Press. Another has lent a considerable sum of money to Pangraphic Press and could very easily lose it should Pangraphic lose its principal source of income, the Mattachine Society. This is not at 
all the democratic Quaker-like organization I had envisioned, but a strictly one-person organization in which no one dares to express a viewpoint which isn't endorsed by Mr. Cobb. I think they would be a lot better off if New York members would forget all about San Francisco and form their own organization with or without the name Mattachine. We should open up a branch of New York Mattachine here in San Francisco. Would Ken Zwerin be interested? Al Dion in New York receives the letters from his San Francisco informants. He writes to the chairman of the Mattachine Area Councils. A nonprofit organization which allows a conflict of interest between itself and a profit-making organization with which it has close ties can leave, shall we say, a bad taste in people's mouths. Al Dion demands an established ethical code. His partner in New York leadership, Curtis DeWeese, writes to board members, taking criticism of Hal Call from a different angle. The continued presence of fiction in the Mattachine Review deters professionals who would write for the publication if they felt there was no question about our seriousness of purpose. To make a rigid professional journal would not be sound because financial support for such a publication would not be forthcoming. Fictional stories do more to affect social change. To ignore fiction as a mirror which shows and influences the changes in our moral standards is to ignore the facts. More importantly, your scheming letter causes a breakdown in our channels of operation. In response to De Dion's demand for an ethical code, the San Francisco Area Council writes, These men have resigned from jobs that paid much better in order to be able to devote their partially full-time 40-hour work weeks to the society. In 1959, Pan Graphic's operating loss was $60, including the money paid to the owners. At the end of the year, Pan Graphic owed some $6,000 and was owed $2,700. The total Pan Graphic Mattachine operation has resulted in serious financial loss to Call and Lucas. Many suggestions have been made for improving the society's operation, but some of these men seem motivated by more of a grab for power than by a genuine interest in the welfare of the society. We must have continuing leadership by proven men. Any attempt to discredit these leaders for purposes of personal aggrandizement can only weaken the society and should be censured by all members. Then Hal fires one off to Al Dion in New York. For you to be satisfied, you apparently will have to be the investigator. Make your grab for power. Come to San Francisco. Find the printer willing to make this magazine. But who will pay for your travel expenses? If we all chipped in, would New York be willing to kick in its share? I hardly think so. But come to Pan Graphic. Take some extra days before the Labor Day convention. Look over the entire sets of records. I will not disagree with the premise that steps to avoid conflict of interest are a pertinent concern for the society. Also to be considered, for instance, is the New York Area Council Winston Book Service relationship. I want a full accounting of your own book service. We have no feeling that there are any irregularities, but we would like to see the figures. Oh, the petty fights. Show me your accounts. Show me your mailing list. Show me your birth certificate. But her emails. Political games. Very little actually being done. New York leader Curtis DeWeese writes, Dear Daily Committee, It recently came to my attention that the 1956 issue of Interim, which we all recall caused a great deal of trouble with Mr. Zwerin, was printed in the 1957 bound volume of the Mattachine Review. At our February 1958 board meeting, it was voted that all other copies of this issue of Interim be destroyed and that no other copies be circulated. We felt certain that the New York Area Council would want this particular item in its bound volume. 
since it was an official publication of the Mattachine Society, and regardless of the hell raised over it, you see, we felt sure that New York would have howled just as loudly if at least one of their volumes didn't contain this official publication. The time is rapidly approaching, Curtis, when a final stand on these matters will be taken. Board of Directors, this organization should make it a special point to patronize businesses owned by our own members as long as their prices are reasonable and the business dealings are conducted in an honest manner. No one has yet presented any evidence that the proprietors of Pan Graphic Press have not dealt honestly with the Mattachine Society. Therefore, the issue is completely outside the realm of ethics. Doesn't part of you long for that smooth transition of power within the Daughters of Belitis? That's not going to happen here. Another mole inside San Francisco writes to Alda Dion in New York. A constitutional proposal has been approved to be put forward at the upcoming convention for the society to revert into a corporation that allows a convention that will permit only delegates, getting rid of the proxy system. Presently, the board of the directors has about one-thirtieth of the member voting strength. Under the new amendment, every ten members would have one representative, but the catch here is that each of the nine board of directors would be entitled to one vote at the convention or one-third of the power. You see the power play? I have never entertained any ideas of getting rid of Hal Call. The work he has done for the society could never be equaled by us at the present time. Better still, he still has many good potentialities. We wish nothing better than to have him work in the framework of the society. Still, we in New York will fight tooth and nail against his corporation proposal with all the proxies that we can muster. Al de Dion sends letters to the entire Mattachine membership, now at a record high of 323 members. He explains why they should reject this new proposal, and also why the society needs a Mattachine book service to replace Pan Graphics. De Dion requests proxies from each and every member so that he might wield the most power. Quickly after, San Francisco's chapter sends everyone in town another letter in all caps. Did you sign a proxy for Mr. Albert De Dion? This proxy will not go to uphold your San Francisco area council, but in effect will go against it. Please sign this new proxy for immediate termination of the intra-organizational development into factions which spread mistrust, unfounded accusations of malfeasance, etc. Shockingly, these letters don't annoy and drive out all of the members, including Elver Barker. He quits teaching, leaves Denver, and heads back to the Bay Area to pursue a career in art, painting, while working in the Mattachine offices three days a week. Elver is writing book reviews for the Mattachine Review and insisting on organizing the 7th Annual Convention. Now inside the San Francisco Mattachine Society offices, Elver Barker watches as Hal and Don dominate the entire organization. New York will use the proxy system the same way we did. We could get support from the board. If we were a corporation, we'd have the entire support of the board. Blocks away, Al Dion and Curtis Deweese quietly arrive early in San Francisco for the convention. They drop their bags in the apartment of one of their informants, Mr. Lane. Lane's place is near the convention's hosting hotel. He has every window in his apartment painted white, allowing light in but no snooping passersby. Dion searches the city for a new press to print Mattachine's magazine. Deweese goes to speak with the daughters of Belitis. 
I have in my hand here a letter from a member of the San Francisco Area Council who definitely states he did not sign a proxy, nor did he intend to. The seventh annual Mattachine Convention begins with a four-hour battle of proxies and credentials. Everyone is there. Boston's Prescott Townsend, Denver's Roland Howard, Chicago's Willard King, Wallace C. Ortega Maxi, One Inc. President Dorleg, Jim Kepner, and even David Finn. Who let him in? Sexologist Dr. Harry Benjamin speaks, and there's a banquet honoring attorney Morris Lowenthal. Dion and Deweese hold 59 proxy votes for New York. Hal and Don hold merely 37. Plus, they assume they have the support of Elver Barker, Henry Foster, and Mr. Lane, two of which are New York's moles. The convention invalidates 19 of New York's proxies from other chapters. New York mole Henry Foster stands. In regard to the proxies held by Hal Call, did they have Mr. Call's name typed in on some of the proxies? On a great number of proxies were no initials indicating that he was actually the bearer of the proxies. Were they all typed on the same typewriter? Door leg of one ink stands. You met here today to carry through an agenda. And I know that you are all very much concerned that it should be done in the right way. However, it is entirely possible for a body to block its own aims and the purposes of its own meetings through technicalities. Counseling legal referrals and correspondents from all over the nation looking for new chapters should be our primary concern. Membership is up 36%. Please, we should lay aside our petty jealousies and bickering and work together. There are so many persons that are counting on us and need our help. Shall we move on? treasurer, if you will. Thank you, Mr. Lucas. Mattachine review expenses for the previous year totaled nearly $5,000. Subscriptions and single-copy newsstand sales bring the review to a nearly $1,000 profit. 41% of these profits are paid to Pangraphic Press. Hands raise across the convention hall. New York leader Curtis DeWeese stands. The Daily Committee has failed to inform the board members of decisions such as this one. Would you elaborate? What other decisions such as this? Legal referrals. Legal referrals? We voted on the termination of certain legal referrals. Mr. Hal Call, did you or did you not refer an individual to Mr. Kenneth Zwerin last week for a possible case? I did, among other attorneys, because it was a special situation. I would like to make this a matter of record that the policy of the society was not carried out by one of the directors. He didn't retain the case. That is beside the point. This is all beside the point, Mr. Dewey's. Mr. Bowman is reading the Treasury report. Are you not the central focus of the Treasury report? There is probably no function of the society so much a target for criticism, and yet so much the tangible evidence of the society's presence. The Treasury is reporting a profit because the Mattachine Review has been featured with positive coverage in Sexology, Physique Pictorial, The Lancet, a British medical journal, on the radio, and television documentaries from BBC to KPFA. Mr. Call, would you provide the monthly cost of the review, including the number of copies printed, and what exactly you mean by production costs? I, uh, I've... I've been, I've been attempting to apply my best judgment and my best efforts throughout the years to build the review. Is there any way you see in reducing the cost? The reviews lately have been pretty colorful. Can there be less color and keep the cost down? 
Can you answer that for me, please? If it means color to be added to it to make a little more, uh, make it a little bit more attractive to sell a great deal more, I think it's worthwhile. Motion to accept the report. Point of order. You didn't see fit to cut off questions on any other report. All questions, all discussion must be trashed out, or all questions must be resolved before the acceptance can be made. Hal has shown himself to be the most aggressively active, most dynamic, most capable and dedicated man to be found anywhere in the society. I have seen him in action. His numerous conversations ranging from the new hospital or prison discharges to a reporter from Time Magazine, from the lonely lady supporter to legislators, by telephone and in person. I have seen in these conversations only the characteristic frankness and honesty, which, in turn, have inspired confidence and trust on the part of his listeners. In all of the years I've known Hal Call, if he has made any profits from that, heaven knows what he would do with them, because he has never lived in an expensive apartment or dressed expensively. He has put all of his money into the movement. Nine hours later, they call it a night. After a late-night party hosted by the San Francisco chapter, they reconvene at 10 a.m. for the local group to present a proposal to rebalance power in a corporate structure in favor of the board of directors. I don't think most of this is good. I would like to look around and say I trust all the board of directors, but then just recall one thing, though. Who elected them up there, if not the membership? And I say, let us have confidence in the membership. <clears throat> this is part of a large plan by New York to emasculate the board of directors, to decentralize the society. We cannot have two governing bodies of the organization. By the time the vote is finally called, they're at a stalemate. Neither side can garner a majority. They call lunch. When they return, Don Lucas of San Francisco opens by reading a letter from the host of the very first conventions of the Mattachine Foundation, former Reverend Wallace de Ortega Maxi. From longtime member Wallace Maxi. It is impossible for me to stand by and see the Mattachine Society being slowly murdered by its so-called loving and sincere members. The rather crude but stiletto-like jabs that are being directed into the main body of the society are simply the preliminary preparations for the final execution by those who are calmly knitting, while in their hearts and minds know full well the blade of the executioner has already been decreed to fall. This whole convention procedure reminds me very much and almost identical in detail of the murder of the Mattachine Foundation, the illegitimate parent of the Mattachine Society. The executioners justified their acts with a loving concern and pretense of considering the wonderful future they predicted for the Mattachine child if it were only freed from the demons that had it under control. The letter goes on. Mr. Lane moves to accept Maxie's resignation from the Mattachine Society. Rather than discussing the true meaning of Maxie's thoughts, the members bicker over whether the letter was in support of San Francisco and the board or New York. I have heard consistent rumors that the New Yorkers want to have the national headquarters in the Mattachine, and they may get out of the organization and form their own. I'd be glad to answer it because I have heard the rumors too. The New York leader stands. 
We have no interest in holding a national office or taking the review. We have worked in the past three years to do much more to unite East and West Coast organization, even though we have felt at times the odds have been against us. However, one competing faction does remain a conflict of interest for our national organization. I move that a three-member committee search for competitive bids for the printing of our review. We have all the confidence in the world and the competency of Pangraphic Press. However, I think it is only business-like. If I was to want a quote of 2,500 copies of the review, black and white, let me see, 32 pages and one color, of course, what would your quote be? I will have to give you that quote at another time, because I will have to have some figures and so forth as a basis for it that I don't have now. What was last month's bill for the review in the month of August for whatever copies you had? You had better ask the treasurer, because I don't remember the invoice amount. For September, $330.76 for 2,300 copies. For August, I believe the figure was in the neighborhood of $440. And who did the collating, stapling, and trimming? Volunteer workers. The September issues had 24 pages in cover. The August issue had 32 pages in cover, covering three colors. I'd like to report some comparable figures that I was able to obtain in the city of San Francisco last week from a printer who said he'd be willing to print the Mattachine Review. And this is his quote. 60-pound paper, which I understand is not used, 20 pounds inside, 50 pounds outside, 32 pages, 2,500 copies. He did cite some color, black and white, and he cited the approximate sum of $350. Almost $100 cheaper than the August issue Pangraphic printed. New York leader Curtis DeWeese nudges his partner. You left out to be assembled. Assembled, stapled, and shipped by him, and to be packed out for distributors without extra cost for freight, and the rest delivered to our office. I can give you the name and address of the printer in the city. He's just across the street from Pangraphic Press. I believe this needs some clarification. I believe these figures included figures that this figure does not include. Yes, we are also entitled to make a charge for certain types of uh, art type composition, artwork, that runs generally a little over $60 an issue. Now, that's part of the cost of getting it ready for the camera. Doesn't that figure also include rental of a machine? Yes, yes, it's including the rental of the machine. It includes the rental of the machine it is composed upon, which is $36 Mr. Chairman, I understand the bill for the printing machine is a separate fund. The council's bill is around $8. The precise bill, roughly $32. Now, how could both organizations be billed on the same Mattachine Review bill? They are not. You have been completely misinformed on that. Well, the fact remains, this is my recommendation to the Mattachine Society to reduce its overhead. If you are going to get bids for printing, then you will also have to get bids for the composition. Motion to accept Point the of order. You had better get together, boys. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, we're here getting into the technical operation of one of the departments. Answering every question about the step by step by step. What should be produced within a department? Motion for competitive bids. Aye. Aye. Nay. Motion for all property not owned by the Mattachine Society or leased or rented by the Mattachine Society that belongs to any other commercial firm to be removed from the society office. Second. What rooms in the Williams building are rented by Mattachine? 
304, 308, and 309. And room 304 is also utilized by Pangraphic Press. It contains the machine which we pay rent for. Of course, Mattachine Society in turn pays rent for Pangraphic Press for the composition of the review and also the commercial compositions of Pangraphic Press. Might Don Lucas like to add that the Mattachine office contains the adding machine that belongs to Pangraphic? <laughs> yes. And the editing is done in room 305 because that's the office I work in and it saves me a great deal of footwork and time wasted running back and forth. Denver and Boston vote with Hal Call. Henry Foster and Chicago vote with New York. The only thing that keeps this motion of Pangraphic physically separating from the Mattachine offices is a small number of abstentions, including Elver Barker, who sits back fuming at all the madness. New York leader Curtis DeWeese stands. A final thought on Pangraphic? On visiting the Daughters of Belitis this week, I found that their book and record service is a fairly lucrative source of income. I know that Pangraphic receives a quarter of its income from Dorian Book Service, but I believe it's high time for this organization to establish its own. I motion that the Society establish the Mattachine Book and Record Service within six months. Aye. Nay. Denver and Elver Barker abstain. Dorian Book Service is voted cut off from the Mattachine. A Mattachino stands. Motion for my San Francisco area council to pull away and be independent of the National Board of Directors. Motion to accept the report. Point of order. Out of order. It's 11.30 p.m. The 7th Annual Convention of the Mattachine Society is adjourned. Roland Howard writes for the Denver Mattachine Newsletter. The New York area council leadership came to this convention, as to several previous ones, and what appears, despite all my efforts to see it some other way, to be a destructive spirit. Methods used by the New York delegation in pursuing the unannounced objectives were vicious and nasty. The innuendo, the invective, the repetitious insinuation of unfound charges, the arrogant leers and smirking chortles and belittling sneers and chatter whenever justifying arguments were presented, the private seeking of defection among the other delegations by whatever means would accomplish this purpose, the obvious eagerness in their pursuit of power to the nearly complete neglect of the heirs and purposes of the society, they were a small pack of jackals nipping at the heels of the limping patient. If booze have got you, hard luck has caught you, and you're bemoaning all the troubles your romance has brought you, just let them watch you, Cruising down the boulevard A few distractions bring gay reactions The movies aren't the only places showing main attractions Get into action, cruising down that boulevard In big towns or small, most any place at all When you're lending support to that favorite sport Cruising down the boulevard 
in big towns or small, most any place at all, they say an apt companion can be found. If you're left in the lurch, and it seems a fruitless search, keep stamping around on that old camping ground. Investigation takes concentration. Be careful, don't be overworking your imagination when you're lending support to that favorite sport. Cruising down the boulevard, hot damn. Cruising down the boulevard. The months following are filled with delays and unanswered letters at the 693 Mission offices, the National Mattachine Society. Their San Francisco office continues to hold Pangraphic Press as the Daily Committee approves a doubling of Don Lucas's salary in San Francisco and a request for Pangraphic to charge the Mattachine what they call the prevailing rate for printing the Mattachine Review, now up to $655 to produce an issue. The $1,000 convention debt on top of these raises brings the Mattachine's first quarter budget to a $2,000 deficit. Elver Barker sits down at his desk at the 693 mission offices. He types thank you letters to each of the convention speakers. Working diligently, he indexes the Mattachine Review and starts revisions of his Mattachine Education Handbook. Hal becomes critical of Elver's revisions, like he's critical of everyone else. Elver finds himself alone in the Mattachine offices, as volunteers stop returning to work under Hal. And Elver has been watching their king quietly all this time. New York will use the proxy system the same way we did. We could get support from the board. If we were a corporation, we'd have the entire support of the board. Then we'd be a business. True. A constitutional proposal, then? Mattachine Corporation? We can put it forward at the 7th convention. That would take power away from the membership. We'd get a lot more done. Elver can't shake this memory, certainly after they followed through on it at the convention. He writes to the Mattachine board. Revelations at the national office and the convention business sessions have murdered my enthusiasm for doing Mattachine work. To the Mattachine Daily Committee, Elver writes. I do not accept Don's contention that the overlap between the Mattachine Society and Pangraphic Press is for the present a necessary evil. When something is admittedly an evil, it is not necessary and should be removed. Behind it all is this battle for political power. Regardless of his otherwise excellent work, it has been shocking to hear Hal's devastating attitude towards our organization, which we have taken so much pride in building, and to realize unmistakably that Hal's, at least, number one objective in being in the movement for sexual equality is for the ulterior purpose of personal financial gain. Numerous members have been aware of this for a long time, but I could never before believe it. To superficially pass off this whole matter as pettiness and jealousy, and rooted in personality conflicts, which I have been guilty of too until I learned the facts, is to be seen only symptom and evading the cause. Elver Barker seals his letter shut and picks his briefcase up off his empty desk. He walks out of the Mattachine Society offices, down the hall, to the elevator. 
Hal Call will later read this letter and threaten Elver with a slander suit. No. One, please. There is no compromise between what is right and what is wrong, what is ethical and what is unethical. Elver writes in a letter to the entire Mattachine Society. It will never get the full cooperation of many individuals and foundations as long as the present interlocked relationship with a private business enterprise exists. The national intra-organizational conflict over the situation will inevitably continue until the bond is broken. But I am grateful to have served in such an ambitious organization, and I promise to never publicly speak a disparaging word against the Mattachine Society. First floor. Thank you. Several days later, on a cold November night in 1960, Elver is out carrying a box of art supplies as Hal Call passes him on the sidewalk. Hello, Elver. I didn't answer. Elver will later say. I went on my way. They'll never see each other again. Hal writes to Dorleg at One Incorporated. Oh, he didn't speak, but I forced him to. Oddly enough, we don't miss Elver. Curtis, Foster, and Tony, all of whom are board members we haven't heard from since the convention. Curtis doesn't vote on any issues sent out by circular letters now. There's no direct communication between New York and our national office. New York is asking the chairman to use his good offices to help cut down the bickering which they fear is destroying the society. Oh well, they might be right, but they certainly didn't appreciate what came out of Roland Howard in Denver's newsletter. If our conventions degenerate further into bitch fights on the level of envious children, the society will die ignominiously, and the world will be convinced of the rightness of all the charges it has made against homosexuals who, they will say, could not even agree on their own interests. And we can all go line up at the psychiatrist's office. Mattachine is not and should never become a federation of separate organizations. Symbolizing an end as well as a beginning. Signifying renewal as well as change. The world is very different now. For man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Now, everyone line up against the wall. Everyone, up against the wall. Up against the wall. Chicago PD raids the CNC club on the northwest side of town. Dozens of women are lined up. If they have zippers in the front of their pants, they're ordered to unzip and show their underwear, just to be sure they're wearing women's underwear. Chicago's Mattachine Newsletter reports. Civic virtue triumphs again. Upon taking office as Chicago's police commissioner several months ago, Orlando Wilson struck a mighty blow against crime and vice in Cook County by outlawing bingo. On February 18th, the forces of law and order took another giant step by raiding one of the city's more sedate gay bars and arresting more than 50 women plus the bartender. Chicago and Del Shearer writes to the latter. 
On February 17th, shortly before midnight, the police arrested some 52 people, herded them off to a Chicago jail, and charged them with presence in a disorderly house. At the station, those women wearing fly fronts, regardless of whether they wore lipstick, long hair, or earrings, were made partially to undress in order to determine whether they wore jockey shorts. Though I do not wish to go into details of their 15-hour detention period, I will say that the conditions of the lockup itself, as well as their treatment, violated more than a few Illinois laws. Enough of the raids! I'm tired of the raids, aren't you? Drag queen Jose Saria shouts from the Black Cat stage in San Francisco. The cops have told me, tell your black cat patrons to stay out of the parks. Avoid the tea rooms. They're watching. If you know what's good for you, you'll behave, you filthy homosexuals. So, we go to the bars, and they raid the bars. They've been trying to shut down our home, the black cat, for years, and haven't done it yet. Again, they did shut it down back in the 20s and the 50s but not in the 60s. Yet. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights. There are more of us than they care to think there are, you know. They use us for political wins, and so, We said we wouldn't vote for either a mayoral candidate, and 9,000 people left boxes for mayor unchecked. The mayor said, shut up, and we said, okay. But we keep coming back. Look, Look at all these officers demanding money from gay bars, and then when they walk out with their little Christmas bonus, gayola, got ya. Ah, but Macy's still continues to be a source of revenue for attorneys defending silly queens who insist on going there to shop at the tea room. I say, it's time for a queen who knows what he's doing to lead this powerful community to get the dignity we deserve. That's why I, Jose Saria, of the Black Cat, the Nightingale of Montgomery Street, declare my candidacy for supervisor. I want all 70,000 of you to register and to vote. There are enough of us to win this fight. If you expect to have others do the things that need being done, such as the election of public officials who are not bigots, Stopping entrapment, discreetly handling blackmail threats, employment of attorneys to fight civil rights cases, the securing of a list of competent, reasonably priced legal counsel, and so forth, you are going to be very disappointed when you need help. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, there is little we can do. United we stand, divided they catch us one by one. 
in the Supreme Court of the United States, Franklin Edward Kameny, Petitioner versus William M. Brucker, Secretary of the Army et al. Respondents. Petition for a writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Court. Our government exists to protect and assist all of its citizens, not, as in the case of homosexuals, to harm, to victimize, and to destroy them. 10% of our population, at the very least, perhaps at least some 15 million people. Unfortunately, much of that portion of our present-day federal government has lost sight of this. Insensately single-minded, they pursue their narrow, savage, backward policies. Pay no heed to the needless havoc wrought upon the hapless citizens who are their victims. In regard to the homosexual, the government is following, and following abjectly, an example of prejudice of the least admirable kind, with no effort to change its own attitude, much less to stimulate changes of attitude elsewhere. Any decision as to morality and immorality is a matter of a citizen's personal opinion and his individual religious belief. It is an attempt to tell the citizen how to think and how to believe, tantamount to its establishing certain religious beliefs and to setting up an implicit religious test. Respondent's case is rotten to the core. The government's regulations, policies, practices, and procedures as applied in the instant case to petitioners specifically and as applied to homosexuals generally are a stench in the nostrils of decent people, an affront to human dignity, an improper restraint upon proper freedom and liberty, a disgrace to any civilized society, and a violation of all that this nation stands for. This case is a reflection of ancient, primitive, archaic, obsolete taboos and prejudices, an incongruous, anachronistic relic of the Stone Age carried over into the Space Age, and a harmful relic. Now the trumpet summons us again. They call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle. If we ever hope to win our battle, we must fight. First, we must unshackle ourselves from fear, for it alone is our omnipresent enemy. If the gay element wants its freedom, it has no choice but to fight for freedom in this country or any country is not a thing given or guaranteed to anyone who does not hold it in its highest esteem. I pledge myself to lead the Chicago chapter of the Daughters of B. Leedis. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Thank you so much to all the voice actors who recorded parts from home in quarantine. I really appreciate everyone's help and eagerness to record queer history from all over the country. This show has become a lovely time capsule of my biological and queer families. Check out my Instagram at Queer Serial to see pictures of voice actors recording the show and pictures of the many historical figures from the story, including tons of stuff from Denver Mattachino Elver Barker. I'm a little bit obsessed with him and his paintings and drawings and beautiful cursive handwriting. 
I'll be posting a lot of cool stuff over there during this short break after this big episode. And you can get bonus episodes in the meantime by subscribing to my Patreon. There's a whole backlog of episodes waiting for you there right now. Patreon.com slash Queer Serial. Click the link down in my episode notes. And if you recently subscribed to that, you've got rewards coming in the mail. And as always, if you're a teacher looking for transcripts of episodes without joining Patreon, please just contact me at QueerSerial.com. Big, 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 big thank you to some of my top donors who are making Season 2 possible. Robert Brown, Kendall Gunter, and Elliot Musgrave at the TGNB Project. As an NB myself, I really appreciate that. You can check out Elliot's health and wellness Patreon for trans, non-binary, GNC, and intersex people. It's pretty cool. Patreon.com slash T-G-E-N-B-Y. This season is also funded in part by a grant from the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence San Francisco. Check out more at thesisters.org for more information. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. One in particular that I use for this episode is Strange Sisters by Jay Zimmett. It is a fascinating education on lesbian pulp. Highly recommended. Thanks for all of your reviews and five-star ratings on iTunes. That's boosting the show to new listeners. Thank you so much. This one from Mango Gold says, As a former member of the Gay Liberation Front in New York City, 1970 to 1971, I thought I knew gay history. And I did in a general way. These podcasts not only educated me to the dangers and challenges of those who came before us, but also gave me renewed appreciation of how much has changed in less than 70 years. Hey, thank you for your work in the Gay Liberation Front, Mango Gold. Everyone stay tuned. You'll hear all about the GLF soon. All right, voice actors. Hal Call is played by, as always, Dominic Caruso. Mayor George Christopher by John Roth. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. <laughs> Phyllis Lyon by Jane Serenska, Del Martin, and Dorleg, and Wallace de Ortega Maxi by Salvio Gatto. They have played all three of these characters over two seasons, and finally all three are in the same episode. Butch Daughter and Barry Shear by Anne-Marie Friedo, Femme Daughter and Martha Sugru by Marissa Clayton, Helen Sandoz by Tina Munoz-Pandaya, Jim Kepner by Gage Kyle, Chief Cahill and Amatashino by Mike Lysak. I will stand behind any policeman doing his his job. Are these real? I'm sorry, is this actually like something that somebody said? Oh, this is on the record in the press. Reporters by Steve Camp and Will Roscoe. Will also played at convention Mattachino. Defense attorney and a Mattachino by my lovely dad, Matt Camp. Another attorney by Evan Camp. Barbara Greer, a.k.a. Jean Damon by Amanda Victorian. Pulp women were in order. Anne-Marie Friedo, Jen Freitag. Lesbian is an ugly word and I hate it. But that's what I am. Oh my god, Jen. <laughs> and I hate it. <laughs> it felt ridiculous. Now I'll do a more... No, will you do that again and really lean into, like, saying hate, but you fucking hate. love it? Will okay. you do, do it just like that again? All right. <clears throat> Julia Plale and Marissa Barbara Clayton, you have not heard the last of the pulp women. Jeanette Howard Foster was played by Jen Dentel. We recorded at the Gerberhart Queer History Archives where she works. Cleo Bonner by my sweet darling Tandria Tandy Young. Don Lucas by Jacob Wallace. Louis Christie by Dan Unser, really getting into his best Niles Crane here. Henry Foster by Keith Green, Convention Mattachino by Matthew Ellenwood, Alda Dion by Gay Historian Owen Keenan, look him up, Dale Lane by Tim O'Reilly, Conrad Bowman by Paul DeCicio, Roland Howard by Garrett Williams. They were a small pack of jackals nipping at the heels of the limping patient. Fabulous. Oh, man. <laughs>
That one was tough. Elevator operator at 693 Mission Street, who is said to have been a gray-haired trans woman who worked there for years, was played by Jacqueline Keeling, Cops by Mike Kanish and Mike Lysak, Del Shearer by Emily Baytek, Jose Saria Returns, played by John Martinez, Elver Barker in his final appearance was played by my darling Joey Kane, and if you've ever listened to any episode of this podcast, you know his voice by now, Frank Kameny was played by my dear friend, mentor, and good Judy. Albert Williams. Primitive, archaic, obsolete taboos and prejudices. And, and, boy, that's wordy. Yeah, right? (laughs) You go right on throwing competent, highly trained scientists and others out of the government. Boy, damn, is that timely. Is a powerful incentive toward overcoming even such formidable obstacles as learning Russian or some other language. Most sincerely and desperately yours, Franklin E. Kameny. Fantastic. That's a good speech. Isn't it great? <clears throat> Dear Mr. Trump. <laughs> right. I'm going to learn Russian. Much more Kameny coming soon. Respondent's case is rotten to the core. Thank you so much to all of the actors, friends, and family who donated their time and talent to this show. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. I'll be back very soon with episode 10, The Hose and Heels Club. In the meantime, subscribe to my newsletter at the link in the episode notes. Thank you for listening all the way to the very end. How kind of you. I'm Devlin Camp. Bye. Dear Frank, got yours of July 27th. Easily spotted from stack of correspondence by profusion of crossed-out words, dashed lines, truncated capitals, liberal underlining, strewn with parentheses heavy on two-line paragraphs, and no farewell. All well familiar to me now.